Israel agrees to a temporary ceasefire with Hamas in exchange for hostages. What is anti-Semitism and how best to combat anti-Semitic narratives? And finally, World War III by proxy continues in Ukraine, Israel, and with threats toward Taiwan. Welcome to Inside Israel News, your home for American conservative commentary on world affairs and thorough and unbiased analysis of Israeli news, politics, and current events in the Middle East. Or as the internet trolls say, mouthpiece of the Zionist conspiracy, spokesman for the elders of Zion, highly paid propagandist of the Mossad. Yeah, no. This is Inside Israel News. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Welcome back, Insiders. Uh, what a what a crazy week. So much to talk about. Oh my God. As always, yours truly, your mad genius, <laughs> your uh, your gregarious Vulcan here to bring you facts, logic, reason, and rationality in a world gone mad. Yes, when the world has gone mad, when when everyone is insane, the sane man sounds crazy, I suppose. Uh, this is this is definitely what qualifies as a time of madness. And a world gone completely insane. Uh, it is it is crazy out there. Uh, at least the fruitcakes are I mean, they're out of the woodwork, right? They're, they're showing themselves. They're showing us who and what they are and putting themselves on display for all to see. And when you see which fruitcakes are which, you know which to drive from civilized society. But, man, what a, what a crazy time. So much going on. I'm going to start, in, as always, talking about uh, the conflict in Israel with Hamas in Gaza and all of this Exciting stuff, a lot of news there, a lot of things going on. I'll try to talk a little bit about uh, some developments in American politics that will impact all of this, given time. A little bit about Europe, uh, and I'll try to move on to talking about the, the larger World War III by proxy, the big picture, right? What, what, how does all this fit into the big picture? And that's, uh, that's how I'll try to end it. And I'm going to be jumping through a lot of things today, and I want to keep these episodes to about an hour. I've been trying. There's just so much to say and so much to talk about. So let's get started. Um, as the conflict in Gaza has continued, right? This this is the, the current iteration of a longstanding conflict with Hamas that goes way back to the 80s. Uh, in this particular instance, the attack on October 7th, uh, absolutely horrific attack, the largest uh, number of Jews killed in a single day since the Holocaust on, on that day, about 1,200, at least 700-ish civilians, and over 200 hostages taken, which of course has become the subject of the news recently. <clears throat> An absolute horror. Uh, still, still a traumatizing event. Uh, Jews around the world are still scarred and and deeply concerned uh you know don't don't think that we have forgotten it's been not quite what a little over 40 days now and uh it has only just begun to imprint itself uh there's there's been a, an awakening there's a there's an awareness quite an education for a lot of people i think in any case that is what started this conflict uh 
Hamas terrorists crossed into Israel, tortured, raped, murdered, and kidnapped children and whole families, uh, burned people alive to the, to the point where you have to have archaeologists go in and use physical anthropology techniques to identify people by their teeth. Um, it is, uh, it's not, it's not fun, right? These are, these are pretty horrible things. So, you know, we're, we're still in shock and recovering from that. Of course, now the IDF has been able to gather its forces and move into Gaza to destroy Hamas. And so I shared on X, formerly Twitter, a number of maps, and I try to share one every time I come across one, of what's going on in Gaza. Basically, they have surrounded northern Gaza from the, the Wadi Gaza, a little creek that runs uh, east to west across the Gaza Strip. From there north through Gaza City is... Uh, the current war zone, and Israel has done everything they can to evacuate civilians from that war zone. There are videos that go out, uh, they, they've been out for a while now, of Israeli tanks and soldiers protecting Gaza civilians as they evacuate, and people trying to put them out there, you know, oh, they're, they're ethically cleansing, I mean, the lies we get. Just, wow. In any case, uh, we've been trying to get non-combatants, I prefer that term, to civilians, because... Uh, the Hamas terrorists dress up as civilians. You know, they'll put in, you know, soccer jerseys and uh, sweatpants and, and go, you know, fire at Israeli forces. And then when they're killed for, you know, then forces are, are firing back at them, uh, they're killed. And then they claim, you know, oh, there's a civilian casualty. Um, and as always, the lies. So many lies about that. But anyway, more on that in a moment. Okay, so Israeli forces have surrounded Gaza City. They've taken control of the coast. They've moved in uh, on all areas, north, south, east, and west, uh, surrounding Gaza City, surrounding Hamas, and choking them off. They are now under siege. There's a ring of fire, a ring of fire around northern Gaza that is holding Hamas uh, within, and uh, they're screaming and crying all kinds of things, trying to, to get Israel to stop because they're feeling the pain. They're feeling the pressure. And you knew this was going to happen. Their, their defenses completely crumbled right away. And they're trying to do everything they can. They're coming out of the tunnels behind the lines. And Israeli troops have been training for this. And so they're quickly bringing air support and they're able to uh, defend themselves very effectively. Uh, and and this, is, this is working out. So now the Indonesian hospital in the northeastern part of Gaza and uh, to the west along the coast, the Shifa Hospital, those are, are now uh, under siege. Why are they under siege? Why are they under attack? Why are Israeli forces surrounding them? Because these are Hamas headquarters, right? They build their headquarters under a hospital because they know we would be reluctant to bomb their headquarters. We're not going to bomb a hospital that could kill a lot of uh, non-combatants because that's just not how we do things. And uh, so, you know, they hide behind their own civilian population. And this gets back to the, you know, all the propaganda we're getting out there about the bloodthirsty Jews. And how we want to, you know, kill everybody. Because, you know, we've never heard that before. Um, not Certainly not from a, a short German with a Charlie Chaplin mustache. Uh, certainly not from the age-old anti-Semitic... Uh, conspiracy theories that are around, I'm going to talk about in a minute. Um, but in any case, uh, the bloodthirsty Jews trying to kill... Look, people, if if we were responding out of emotion, 
If, if we just wanted to destroy the people in Gaza, all of them, we'd have done it already. I mean, Israel has the firepower. They could just start an artillery barrage, World War I style, like something out of the Merzagon or uh, one of the, uh, <laughs> the various Inzundri offensives. And we could just had a walking artillery barrage from one end of Gaza to the other and uh, bombed all of uh, everything in between, you know, anything that's left standing. And we could have just blasted the place to the ground and massacred everyone there. Right. But we don't do that. That's not how Israel operates. We do not believe in killing non-combatants. In Judaism, we believe in morality and we have a very strict morality, a morality that Hamas uses against us because... They use human shields and they hide their their headquarters under hospitals and that kind of stuff. And knowing that we would be reluctant to uh, attack them in any case. So this is the, the situation that prevailed before the uh, ceasefires. So we, we'd surrounded these hospitals. The, the Israeli forces have the Hamas leadership kind of pinned down uh, without having to go into the central Gaza city. Uh, they've been able to get at uh, the main uh, Hamas headquarters and, and their main positions. Very, very wisely done. Very wisely done. Avoiding the most populous areas and going straight for the jugular, right? And that's how Israel prefers to do things, with some precision. You go straight to the enemy. Uh, they have consistently dropped leaflets and helped people escape and, like I said, escorted people out because Hamas will fire mortars and rockets and shoot their own people trying to leave. Uh, and there have been a number of situations with the media where, you know, they're talking to some uh, Gazan and they they start condemning Hamas and saying, you know, you know, Hamas needs to be destroyed. Leave, you know, we want them to leave us alone. And then they immediately ignore that person and move on to the next interview because that's what they want to do. Uh, and we get the Pallywood uh, from Mr. Fafo, who's been everything from, a, a you know, uh, a tech working on a, a on a CT scanner to, uh, you know, easy. apparently he studied radiology at some point, uh, to being a cleric calling for prayers, to being a Hamas fighter, to being a journalist, to, uh, singing and dancing. And, you know, this, this guy's, you know, going to get one of the, uh, the awards for greatest actor, you know, he's crying on the screen about, you know, Israel bombing, Gaza in one minute, and then he's laughing and smiling and talking about how great it is. They're firing rockets at the Israelis right now. You know, and you can see the rockets streaming off of houses, uh, the, the rocket trails streaming from houses in the background. It, you couldn't make this stuff up. If, <laughs> if you wanted to, you couldn't make this stuff up. Uh, and again, they know that uh, they'll, they'll have idiots in the West who will believe this stuff because people hate Jews. People really do. And, and they are willing to, to take that bias uh, and the media as well. So they have lots of people to help spread their their propaganda. So it's it's infuriating. It really is. It's maddening. But what can you do? Right. We have to we have to live in this world. So the tactical situation for Hamas is very bad. They're getting whacked. They know it. And they're so desperate that they were willing to entertain a hostage swap. So they demanded the release of 150 convicted terrorists in exchange for, uh, over the course of several days, about 50 Israeli hostages. The security cabinet debated this for five hours. I mean, it was a very heart-wrenching decision. And again, 
part of the way that Hamas likes to toy with us, right? That they know that we value life. And that's the game, right? The, the game is they don't, right? They, they want as much death as possible. The more Gazans who are killed, the more non-combatants, the more women and children, the better for them. As far as they're concerned, you know, they want more dead, right? So then they can scream and cry about, you know, Israeli atrocities that aren't happening, right? Uh, they, they certainly want to kill every man, woman, and child within Israel, Muslim, uh, Jewish, Thai workers. You know, how do we know this? Because on October 7th, when they came, they killed everyone they encountered, whether they were Arab, whether they were Jewish, Muslim, Christian, whatever, they didn't care. They just killed everyone they could get their, their hands on. Sick people, truly sick people. But anyway, their tactical situation is bad enough that they they push for the ceasefire and they, they know they can toy with us about it. So Israel debated it hotly. We know that if we agree to the deal, it will benefit them in a number of myriad ways. But we value life above all else. And so Israel decided to accept the ceasefire. It just shows you, you know, again, bloodthirsty Jews, right? Start to kill as many people as we can. And so we're releasing 150 terrorists, you know, people who have stabbed, attempted to stab, you know, who have attacked Israelis and committed acts of terror and attempted acts of terror in exchange for, you know, children, for old women, including a Holocaust survivor, for people who are not soldiers, who are not combatants, right? They are just people, ordinary people, could be your family. Some of these hostages who are being released do not yet know, or did not know at least until they were released, that they are orphans. There are children who do not know their entire family is dead, and they're going to find out when they get back to Israel. What a, what a wonderful thing. The, the torture, the rape, I mean, these poor hostages have been so abused. Nevertheless, Ohad Munder, a nine-year-old boy who was kidnapped by Hamas, is back home, uh, with his family. And so we had a, a great picture of him having ice cream for the first time in 40 days and uh, a chance to, to be given proper medical care and, and return to health. The mental scars from this event will probably last him the rest of his life. Uh, believe me, I would know. Uh, but when you get a chance, when you're out there in the next few days, have an ice cream and raise your ice cream to Ohad Munder. You know, to, to this poor kid who had to spend 40 days with Hamas because of the evils of terrorism. And, you know, it just, it, it's a difficult thing to describe, you know, just the, uh, just the, the horrors of all of this. It's been a really difficult time for a lot of us to, to handle it. The attempt to... I mean, you know, they commit these horrors in, in hopes that they'll demoralize us and, and that we'll lose our motivation to fight back. I think we're stronger and more motivated than ever in deep pain and mourning and grief and suffering intensely. But we're going to make them suffer, too. <laughs> or we're going to destroy this evil thing called Hamas and uh, rid the world of it. And uh, that will... Make a better world for everyone. So, you know, put a, put a stop to all this nonsense. In any case, so that's why this ceasefire was agreed. Now, the ceasefire lasted a whole of 15 minutes. 
it was 15 minutes into the ceasefire and rockets were fired from Hamas, you know, by Hamas, from Gaza, from rooftops and houses and what have you, toward Israel. So, you know, they made it 15 whole minutes. You know, nevertheless, uh, Israel did not resume ground operations. Again, they, they toy and they play these games and they, they say that they're having a ceasefire, but they keep firing rockets. And the international press and media, being anti-Semitic as they are, will, of course, give them control of the narrative and support them. So, you know, if uh, you know, when Israel resumes the ground operations, it, it'll definitely be portrayed in such a way that, you know, Israel is the one. You know, is, Israel broke the ceasefire. We gave up on the ceasefire, right? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely see that. Be prepared. Don't be surprised. You know, when you see that in any case, uh, Hamas did not uphold the, the ceasefire and they toyed on the second day. They toyed with, you know, well, we're not going to release any hostages. Then they went back and forth. Finally, they did, you know, they're going to release the hostages. You know, uh, again, they they like to toy with us on these these things because they know how much we value life and how much we value each individual. And they're happy to sacrifice. I mean, they're they're happy to send their children off to die for, you know, for nothing for the cause of committing mass murder. Just the, the hate, the hate, the racism, the, um, the bigotry that underlies the Palestinian cause is truly abhorrent. Uh, and, you know, the reality is this war here is basically the last legacy of the Second World War. These, the Palestinian cause is the last legacy of the Nazis, right? The, their cause, you know, the the PLO, their their uh, their whole political mission was founded by Amin al Husseini, who was, of course, uh, an ally of Adolf Hitler, who lobbied the Nazis for a final solution to the Jewish question. I mean, you know, this is this is the last thing, and it's you know we've spent years everybody, everybody's you know that disagrees with everybody literally a Nazi, and now literal Nazis, you know, the the last vestiges of Nazi fascism are rearing their ugly heads in this conflict and people are, are trying to look the other way. You know, that's um, that's so typical and, and it's infuriating. In any case, this ceasefire will not last. Eventually, either they will run out of hostages to return or we'll run out of patience for their toying. And um, again, they have not kept the ceasefire because they've been launching rockets and uh you know, we're, the, the military operation will resume and it will resume quickly, decisively and with intense destruction. Hamas, the terrorist organization and all of its little uh, component terrorist parts, all of their equipment, command centers, all of the terrorists, they will be gone. We are going to dismantle Hamas. Hamas will be destroyed. Hamas delenda est. Hamas must be destroyed. And that's what's going to happen here in time. But we value the hostages and their lives enough that even after all this horror, we are willing to pause, knowing that Hamas will lick their wounds, knowing that we're releasing convicted terrorists from prison uh, and in order to get our people back, because their lives are the most important thing to us. It says so much. There's a great meme going around. It says so much. The people we're trying to get back are, you know, a nine-year-old boy named Ohad, who just wants to have some ice cream and live like a normal boy, right? And, and have a childhood and grow up, right? 
little girls held in, in captivity, an old woman, a Holocaust survivor. These are the people we want back. What do they want back? They want, you know, people who have stabbed people, right? It's like, you know, talking on, on social media, this lady, they've kept my daughter for eight years. And of course, she doesn't mention in, in her little video there that her daughter tried to stab an Israeli soldier, right? Her daughter didn't just, the Israelis didn't just pick up her daughter and put her in prison. She tried to stab an Israeli soldier. She was convicted of attempted terrorism and she spent eight years in prison, right? Well, There's a great argument here for the death penalty, right? If not, maybe not for attempted terrorism, but if, if these terrorists who actually committed stabbing attacks and what have you, if we, you know, dealt with them, there wouldn't be anyone to be released. But again, we're, Israelis are too humane even for that. We don't have the death penalty in Israel. Uh, and the only person they've ever executed was Adolf Eichmann, who, of course, was uh, an SS officer who participated in the Holocaust. So there you go. There's, a, there's another meme that's been going around. Keep an eye out for it. It shows a woman, you know, before her arrest and after being released. And they, they're trying to make it look like she was tortured and gnarled. So she had a car bomb. She went to detonate it. Instead of blowing up and killing her and a whole bunch of people around her, the car simply caught fire. And so she was badly burned in the process of attempting to commit terrorism. Nevertheless, she was pulled from the car, right? Israelis risked their lives to pull her from the car, so that her life was spared and she was convicted of attempted terrorism and went to prison, right? She's not gnarled and whatever from Israeli torture. She did that to herself in the attempt to kill herself, to kill other people. That's what happened. So watch out for all of this propaganda. Watch out for the nonsense. We're getting all kinds of stuff out there. When I get back from the break, I'm going to talk about anti-Semitism. What is it? How to spot it? How to combat anti-Semitic narratives? Um, much as I would like to talk about other things, the fact is I've had one too many friends message me with something weird they saw from an acquaintance on a social media or heard from someone in a, in a, a group somewhere or a church or what have you. They, they heard some fruitcake say something, and I want to be able to address these on a larger scale. So stay tuned for that. After a day of recording uh, these podcasts, I really enjoy having a good cigar. I love the cigar lifestyle, going to cigar lounges and meeting interesting people to talk to. It, it really is an interesting lifestyle and I enjoy my uh, various scotches, whiskeys and, and other uh, interesting drinks that I, I find along the way. If you're interested in lifestyle and uh, especially uh, the lifestyle surrounding cigars, there is nothing better than the Cigar Aficionado magazine. Uh, they have a subscription. You can get four issues a year. I love getting my Cigar Aficionado. Uh, I immediately take it out, look through it, uh, love the ads. You know, it's funny. I, nobody, nobody likes the ads, but I like the ads. It's always interesting to see what's in there. And they rate cigars, and I always find some really great cigars to go look at and uh, get a good smoke. So sign up for... Uh, Cigar Aficionado, subscribe and uh, get your issue today. All right, as we begin this segment on anti-Semitism, I just want to take a moment to say thank you to a number of members of Congress from Richie Torres, 
uh, was not a Republican. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm a conservative commentator, I will say, though there have been a number of Democrats, including John Fetterman and uh, a few others who have really taken up the mantle to fight anti-Semitism. And I'm grateful for that as much as I am grateful for several Republicans who've done the same. This isn't a time for Republicans and Democrats. This isn't a time for left and right. This is a time for Americans standing up for American values. Bigotry is not an American value. Quite the opposite. Americans oppose bigotry in all its forms. And I am so grateful that so many have stood up for American values at a time when those values are under attack by the woke mob, right? People like AOC and uh, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. Well, we have real vile anti-Semites in Congress. Thankfully, we also have great champions in Congress who help us in our time of need and who are there to support the Jewish people and, and oppose bigotry and uh, generally support us and help us in our time of pain and need. Uh, one of those, of course, is Ted Cruz. Uh, my favorite senator from Texas, uh, Ted Cruz, is awesome, and I appreciate him. Uh, in his podcast, The Verdict, he has taken down, uh, and you know, he's, he's taken the lead in fighting anti-Semitism. He's done a really good job uh, calling out MIT for refusing to defend Jewish students, among other universities, uh, but but especially MIT, uh, and uh, you know, just. So grateful for voices like Ted Cruz and, again, for people like Fetterman and, and Torres that just stand up to the evil. It doesn't take much to stand up, to point at the evil and say, that's evil. It's wrong. We're against it. It's the first step to being to, to finding a solution, right? You know, the first thing you have to do is say, that is evil, <laughs> right? You look at World War II. It's like, okay, the Nazis, the Japanese, the Italian, they are, you know, Mussolini, right? His guy. They're evil. They're bad. We're going to defeat them. Very simple thing, right? Um, you know, and that's, it's so important to me. So again, a heartfelt thank you, much gratitude to all of those uh, leaders and all Americans who are standing up to anti-Semitism everywhere. If you have done that, I am grateful. I don't care whether you're tall, short, left, right, whether you're, you know, uh, somebody that, that I would think of as a kook in other times. You know, right now, I love you. We're, we, we Jews appreciate you. And uh, again, this is, this is back to the, the point. This is American values, right? Americans are against all of this stuff. But, uh, you know, there you, you have that. And, and I really, I really think Ted Cruz has done a great job calling this stuff out. Uh, in a recent episode, he took apart an anti-Semitic video that was being shared around uh, some Pallywood stuff. Um, if you're not familiar with the term Pallywood, obviously, that's Palestinian Hollywood. Uh, for a lot of years, they've been good at, you know playing these games where, you know, you get all the dead bodies in the room uh, for the photo op and then those dead bodies get up and, and look at their phone. Or, you know, we, we, years ago we had this one really ridiculous video. They were, they're carrying this martyr, you know, it's like five or six guys and they're carrying this martyr from one town to the next uh, over this hilltop. Uh, and um, every so often one of them would drop the, uh, the stretcher and the martyr would fall off and then the martyr would crawl back onto the stretcher so that they could carry him to the next town. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if you know how dead bodies work, 
<laughs> but generally speaking, they don't get up, they don't look at their phone, and they don't crawl back onto a stretcher. So, you know, these are the, the Pallywood games that we're familiar with. Okay, so, another number of friends, how do you define anti-Semitism? Well, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, IHRA, has a thorough definition of anti-Semitism. So if you get people who are, you know, giving you garbage out there, go to uh, the IHRA website where you'll find the definitions that I'm about to read. Why am I reading it? It needs to be said. And I, I, I hate to bore you guys because I know you guys are here for, for the more interesting content. Uh, but we need to take a moment here to pause and think, what is anti-Semitism? Because I get all these people who come out, you know, uh, they're, they're, well, you, you just say anyone who disagrees with the Israeli government policy is an anti-Semite. No, <laughs> I disagree with the number of Israeli government policies. I've said so on the show. I have called out my fellow Jews for doing things that I felt were inappropriate, right? I've called out uh, the residents of Judea and Samaria for attacking Arabs or burning down Arab villages, right? I've said that was wrong. I opposed that. I have opposed many Israeli policies on here by left-wing and right-wing governments, right? I mean, I called on <laughs> Nitzan Horowitz for his woke nonsense as a, a government minister just as much as I've, you know, been been cautiously, you know, talking about some of the the the, the far right. I do I say like I've had a, a, a cautious optimism about his uh, Bibi's current government because well it, you know it's generally center right. It's got you know this far right list of parties in it that I've you know been suspicious of and, and careful and what you know like I've said. So if you've listened to this show, you know that I've disagreed with Israeli policies and I have disagreed with it. But I don't believe that Israel should not exist. I don't advocate for uh, the destruction of an entire country just because I don't like the people who live there, right? You know, when we have these problems in the world, nobody says that Sudan shouldn't exist because of Dar Darfur or that, you know, China shouldn't exist because they want to invade Taiwan. But for some reason... There's one country in the world that a whole bunch of people think shouldn't exist. And it's non-existent means non-existence means the murder of a lot of people, millions of people, including non-Jews. A lot of non-Jews who live in Israel, nobody seems to be discerning or discriminating when they go in and try to kill Israelis. They just kind of kill everyone. All right. So without further ado, the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. There are a lot of these bullet points here, so I'm just going to read them off. So they are out there for everyone to hear and to know. Calling for, aiding, or justifying the killing or harming of Jews in the name of a radical ideology or an extremist view of religion. How many times have I said on this podcast, holding Jewish life to have less value, right? Wanting harm to come to the Jews, right? That's, that's a very simple start to defining anti-Semitism. Making mendacious, dehumanizing, demonizing, or stereotypical allegations about Jews, such as the power of Jews as a collective, uh, especially but not exclusively the myth about a world Jewish conspiracy or of Jews controlling the media, economy, government, or other societal institutions. The conspiracy et al., which I will discuss in more detail in just a minute. Accusing Jews as a people of being responsible for real or imagined wrongdoing committed by a single Jewish person or group, or even for acts committed by non-Jews. 
this one's really easy. How many, how long, for how long have we said, you know, with Muslims, you know, we have the 9-11 attacks and we immediately, oh, not all Muslims are like that, right? You know, you have a, a murder committed in your town. The person happens to be African-American or Asian-American or Latino and everybody immediately, well, not all of those people are like that, right? But when it's Jews, we immediately, to, oh, that, that Jew was acting as part of a vast conspiracy to bloody, I want to kill everybody, all right, okay. Denying the fact, scope, mechanisms, uh, for example, gas chambers, or intentionality of the genocide of the Jewish people at the hands of the National Socialist Workers' Party of Germany, a.k.a. the Nazis, and its supporters and accomplices during World War II, the Holocaust et al., which includes Amin al-Husseini, right? If you're, if you're denying Holocaust, that's anti-Semitism. That's pretty blatant. And, and the reason for that is if you're denying the Holocaust, you are essentially calling for another one. We'll talk about Holocaust 2.0 here in a minute. Accusing the Jews as a people or Israel as a state of inventing or exaggerating the Holocaust. Accusing Jewish citizens of being more loyal to Israel or to the alleged priorities of Jewish uh, worldwide conspiracy than the interests of their own nations. Hmm. Denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, for example, by claiming that the existence of the state of Israel is a racist endeavor. Applying double standards by requiring of it a behavior not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation. Right? What country wouldn't defend themselves after having their citizens brutalized, tortured, raped, and murdered, kidnapped, by a terrorist organization, right? Using the symbols and images associated with classic anti-Semitism, for example, claims of Jews killing Jesus or blood libel to characterize Israel or Israelis. Drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to that of the Nazis. And finally, holding Jews collectively responsible for the actions of the state of Israel. Whether we agree with the state of Israel or not. So, this is... A lot of this stuff is, is kind of common sense, and I, I, I get that part. It, it, it's easy to see when you look at it, what is anti-Semitism, right? So I want to condense all of that into a couple of very simple, bite-sized ideas that are a little bit easier to, to go with. So first and foremost, as I've said before, holding Jewish life to have less value. And that includes calling for harm to the Jews. Right. So if, if you want to globalize the jihad, right, from the river to the sea, all of that kind of stuff uh, says that Jewish lives do not matter, that it is OK to murder Jews. Pretty obvious example of anti-Semitism. OK, I, I don't know how to say this more. You know, if, if if it's, you know, Israel is committing horrible atrocities, killing civilians in Gaza, but you don't make mention of, well, but Hamas killed civilians in Israel. Right. Well, those Israeli civilians don't matter as much as the, the civilians in Gaza. That's called racism. That's anti-Semitism. That is obvious bigotry. Right. Israel has a right to defend itself and its citizens. OK. Um, so, yeah, holding Jewish lives to have less value. Classic anti-Semitism. Uh, that includes the, what I was talking about, calling harm for Jews and this kind of thing. The conspiracy at all. This is the most frustrating one because it 
you know, it, it plays on stereotypes about Jews that are, I don't want to say this this way, but I, I'm going to say it so that we, that are half true, right? So Jews are very smart people, generally speaking. I'm going to talk about some of the things we've given the world here in a minute. But, you know, because we are smart people and because we tend to be, there tend to be a number of Jews who are good at financial management, which I was so good at this, you know, good at investing and what have you. I'd be a, a wealthier, happier man, probably. Um, but, you know, there are Lonsmen among us, like myself, that I, I have to work for a living. So um, you have you have this, this perception of Jews as being very smart people, and therefore, uh, you know, naturally it, it follows that, that we would conspire. Right. There could be a Jewish conspiracy. Right. And all this stuff. So if you hear anybody say the Rothschilds or, you know, referring to the elders of Zion or this kind of stuff, those are anti-Semitic tropes. Those are those are just obvious anti-Semitic lies that were used to justify the Holocaust. So when people say that kind of stuff to you, remind them that those conspiracies were used to justify the Holocaust. And if you're justifying the Holocaust, you're also denying it, which means you're calling for another one, right? It all follows from there. Um, what frustrates me most about the conspiracy is that it's so obviously stupid, right? When Whenever Jews get together, I mean, you know, go to a World Jewish Congress or World Zionist Congress sometime. I mean, you know, you can't find any two Jews who agree that the sky is blue. I mean, you'll, you go to one of these, you'll find Jews who are uh, free market and Jews who are communist. You'll find everything in between. You'll find people who are humanist and people who are orthodox religiously, right? You'll find people who are... Uh, all about, uh, you know, the trans agenda alongside people who are all about family, you know, men and women getting married and having lots and lots of kids, right? We, we have such a diversity of opinion in the Jewish community. There's so many, I mean, you know, we always joke, right? If you have two Jews in a room, there are three opinions. Um, <laughs> we, we are such a diverse community. We can't agree on anything, right? You can't get Jews to agree on anything. If you've ever been to, you know, Getting, getting Jews to, to go to Congress and lobby for Israel, APAC, right? So that's where people, oh, APAC, whatever, right? So all we do there in, in, at APAC, and I've been to several Washington policy conferences, and I've done work with APAC over the years, uh, you know, all, all we do there is work on behalf of the American people. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like any other group that, that organizes and whatever, publish information, get information to the right people at the right time. And yes, there are a lot of donors involved with APAC who give based on the recommendations of the organization because they want people who are generally supportive of Israel. And there's nothing wrong with that since 80% of the American people side with Israel over the Palestinians, right? So if the overwhelming majority of Americans already agree with us, all we're doing is making sure Congress does what the American people want them to do. Right. And then you all these people, you know, they get trillions of dollars for Israel. You know, Israel gets a pittance of military spending and the foreign aid that goes to Israel is this tiny little figure, you know, four billion dollars a year, which is used to, you know, buy things in the U.S. for the most part. Right. To. You know, for Israel, you know, uniforms, guns, 
military equipment from the U.S. to be used in Israel. The only difference between the United States government buying that equipment for the U.S. Army or Marine Corps uh, versus Israel buying it is that it's used by the Israeli government. But it's the same difference. Buying, you know, we're using American money to buy American equipment, and it just happens to go to a foreign ally rather than to our own military, right? Uh, and even there, I mean, I'm telling you, I've been there many times, I've, and other than our support for Israel, you won't find much agreement on any other issues. Uh, there are very few things that uh, we agree on, you know. Uh, although at one event, uh, we had Joe Lieberman up on the stage, and uh, the cheering and the clapping was so resounding, the applause lasted so long, he said, you know, if you guys don't quiet down, you're going to make me cry before I get a chance to speak. And we... We had to tone it down a little bit. So I guess the one thing we did all agree on was that we thought Joe Lieberman had done a great job as a senator over the years and uh, at that time a retired senator when when he was on stage. So, you know, that that's that. But you go there, if you poll people and, and walked around asking questions, you would find a hundred different opinions on everything. So there can't be a vast Jewish conspiracy if Jews can't agree on anything. And let me tell you, as somebody who's tried to get my fellow Jews to wake up to the threat of left-wing anti-Semitism for years, so many people, oh, it's not as bad as you say it is. Yeah, there are a few kooks. It's not that bad. It's not going to be a big deal. You know, it's not going to affect us. People will grow up. They'll learn better. Well, here we are. Okay. So, you know, in the United States, there are Jews who abhor politics. There are Jews who love politics. There are Jews who are Democrats and Jews who are Republicans. There are Jews who are woke. And there are Jews who are MAGA. I mean, we come from all kinds of different places of all kinds of different opinions. If there were a conspiracy, if we could all get on the same page, we'd be dangerous. Uh, we could actually, you know, if we could all agree on anything, yes, that would be very powerful, but it wouldn't subvert the democratically expressed will of the American people. If the American people were 80% for the Palestinians, there's nothing the Jews could do in America to change people's opinion. The Arabs, on the other hand, buy stock in media companies and they, uh, they uh, donate to universities, as does China. And as a, uh, it's a funny thing. Those universities have a lot of wokeness and anti-Semitism. Right. And then we get the media reporting against the interests of the American people, against what we believe, trying to convince us of things that we know are not true, that the poor, suffering Palestinians, this kind of thing. Right. But, you know, that's not a conspiracy. People. When you. Advance these kinds of theories, when you when you agree with these kinds of things, when you spread these things, when these people make these anti-Semitic statements, Jews get killed. Now, when I hear these things going on out there and I hear people spouting anti-Semitic nonsense, I think of Shani Lau, you know, with her body on the back of that tailgate being spat on as men shout Allahu Akbar, you know, what's left of her body in her underwear after having been sexually abused, tortured, murdered, and then later having her head cut off. You know, there are sick people out there who hate Jews. And they will use your support to kill more Jews. So if you want blood on your hands and the people who spread these Rothschilds conspiracies and uh, who, you know, support the, the lies behind uh, the pro-Palestinian cause, or they say river to the sea, their hands have blood. They have blood on their hands. They, they are they're complicit in the murder of Jews. 
Uh, and in the Jewish community, we're already starting to talk about Holocaust 2.0. Uh, we, are, we are very much aware that in Europe, especially, Jews are not safe, that on college campuses in the United States of America, a country full of people who abhor bigotry and who believe in justice and freedom and all those good things, in this country, the bastion of liberty, Jews are not safe in universities or in, you know, downtown uh, the downtowns of our cities, you know, it, it's sickening to think. And we, we have a lot of work to do to correct that. But there you go. Uh, and there are, so the last thing I'll say now, there are the people who come out directly with these things. And then you get the people, because, you know, a fruitcake is easy to identify, right? So there are these people who have the big, and the Mossad did 9-11. Really? <laughs> Wow, because I'm pretty sure Osama bin Laden claimed responsibility like he, you know, he didn't he didn't shy away. He knew what he did and why, you know, funny thing that you didn't. Right. I mean, sometimes things are exactly as they appear. Right. The simplest answer is usually the best. Um, so, uh, you know, you get that and, and you, you'll get people then who have those psychotic ideas, who have those conspiracy theories, but they're a little more subtle. Right. They, they have, they'll, they'll add a degree of subtlety, reverse straw man. Right. They'll pretend to be less extreme in order to try to convince people of their psychotic nonsense. And so they'll come out with stuff saying, you know, oh, uh, you know, Israel is causing extremism and our support for Israel is causing the extremists to hate America. And they'll they'll come up with all kinds of garbage to try to, you know, to be slick and slide this in here and there, you know, oh, you know. The, the Israelis are doing these horrible things. And that's why these things are... Oh, it didn't happen in a vacuum. Right? Hmm. Anyway, um, if you're calling for Israel's destruction, if you are saying that Israel should not exist, you're calling for mass murder. You're calling for Holocaust 2.0, which means you're denying Holocaust 1.0, which makes you a Nazi. I mean, there you go. I mean, if you want 9 million Jews and Arabs and Christians and Thai workers and Vietnamese workers and Bedouins and everything else. If you want all those people to die, you're just an awful person. You really are, you know, and I thought we had evolved beyond all of that. I had, I had hoped as a society that we'd move beyond this kind of bigotry and desire that this bloodthirsty desire for mass murder, but I was wrong. Or I'd, rather, I'd hoped. In any case, all of these fruitcakes are coming out of the woodwork. If you identify them, just note, right? And don't argue with insanity. People come at you with stupid stuff that implies a conspiracy. One of my friends recently was saying, you know, well, the CIA and the Mossad have created all of the, you know, stirred up all this radicalism and, and you know, that's, that's causing all this migration into Europe and we're just going to have to hunt down the root cause of all of this. Really? And what would that root cause be? Maybe a, a vast Jewish conspiracy, you know, because Jews are sniveling, conniving little trolls with horns on their heads who eat blood matzah and have secret space lasers. Whew. Wow. The stupidity of anti-Semitism, or as Arendt said, the banality of evil, my friends. So be aware of this stuff. Be on the lookout. You know the proper definitions of anti-Semitism. Go out there and, and go get them. You know, let them have it with both barrels because 
And again, that's a call for nonviolent efforts to convince people to abandon their bigotry or variously to expose the bigots so that others can see them for what they are. I'm not calling for any kind of violence, but let them have it. You know, make sure that people know who is a bigot and who is not, because, you know, that that's how we are able to divide decent, civilized people from trash, right? From from people who are calling for murder and, and you know, mass murder and, and that kind of thing. All right, so with that, um, now that I've talked about anti-Semitism and, and updated you guys on what's going on in the world, let's talk about the big picture. A couple of interesting things in the U.S. and Europe before I talk about World War III by proxy. Um, in the uh, U.S. political situation, the greater situation, uh, things have begun to change. <laughs> Since this conflict has broken out, I think people are getting tired of the chaos and the lack of leadership from Washington. Uh, the polls have shifted very distinctly in Donald Trump's favor. How far in Donald Trump's favor, you ask? NBC. That's right. NBC, the pollster who said that Hillary was leading by 11 points two weeks before the November 2016 election where Donald Trump proceeded to win the election. Uh, NBC now has a slight lead for Donald Trump. Everyone else has his lead between four and six points on average, right? And it depends also on how you pull. Head-to-head -head polls I'm talking about right now. Just Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Donald Trump is leading by, you know, less than two points, according to NBC, and by four to six points by almost everyone else. Now, Head-to-head -head is probably not going to happen in this election because, as we know uh, already, RFK Jr. Uh, has announced that he'll be running independent. So we have at least one third-party candidate. Some polls put him up at, you know, 13, 14, 15 percent. Some put him down at 8 or 9 percent. Either way, um, for the most part, Trump's lead remains about the same. So I've seen in several polls where, for example, Trump has a four-point lead over Biden head-to-head, -head, and then you put in RFK and Trump still has a four-point lead over Biden, right? It's just, you know, the people who are coming out to support RFK, either he pulls pretty evenly from both or he pulls people who are not otherwise inclined to vote, you know, who might not vote in an election where it was just head-to-head -head Biden and Trump. So... He doesn't seem to have a major impact on the race from that point of view. Like he's not, you know, Donald Trump isn't leading because of RFK. But it is interesting to see the polls shift that way because this summer, Joe Biden had a bit of a resurgence uh, for, for a time there this summer. It kind of looked like Joe was on the back, you know, on the upswing. Uh, it seemed like the economy is not as bad as it could be and things were kind of doing whatever, and it's like, look, look like, you know, maybe Joe Biden didn't look so bad, right? And of course, they've had all the negativity about the charges against Trump and what have you. None of that seems to matter right now. Donald Trump is back in the lead. Interesting thing there. When it comes to the Republican primary, uh, basically everyone's way behind Donald Trump. Um, some primary polls put Ron DeSantis in the 20s or 30s, um, but for the most part, Donald Trump is, is a majority 
you know, 60%, 65%, depending on whom you ask, Donald Trump is in the lead. And that's just kind of uh, uh, where things are, right? So that's an interesting shift in American politics. Around the world, things are starting to change in response to the events of October 7th and the fallout from it. So one example of, of the change in Europe uh, is the uh, victory of Gert Wilders in uh, the Netherlands. Uh, Wilders and his PVV party have won the largest percentage of the vote in the Netherlands after all of these events, the pro-Palestinian riots there and the protests and all this kind of thing. And of course, the events of October 7th. Uh, he's been very, he's considered far right in Europe, which is comical because he's not that far right. Um, and Wilders has been a longtime opponent of taking in more Muslim immigrants in Europe and um, an opponent of the EU. Sadly, the PVV is also, uh, according to certain allegations, uh, close to Russia, uh, opposes aid to Ukraine and things of that nature, which is unfortunate. But at the same time, recognizing that the immigration policies Europe has been adopting are not good for Europe is a good start. All right. There have been other shifts in European thinking as well. Uh, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor of Germany, is now talking about deporting people who riot in favor of Hamas. And you have to remember those people are not German citizens. They're, they have a large number of resident aliens who can be deported. Uh, gaining citizenship in Germany is very difficult. Uh, so they can get rid of uh, basically any of these people they want. And that's a very different tone from his predecessor, Angela Merkel, who was very favorable toward this immigration policy. Part of her Krankliebe, <laughs> part of her Krankpolitik. Uh, the, you know, if you know, you know, my, my fellow Stan, Stanley Kubrick fans out there are going to be laughing their tickets off. Krankliebe. Strange love. Anyway, um, so uh, I, what I call the Krankpolitik of Angela Merkel, um, as opposed, say, to the Ostpolitik of uh, uh, previous uh, <laughs> chancellors, Bundeskanzlers in uh, Deutschland. So uh, anyway, her Krankpolitik has led to a very dangerous situation for Germany. And that Krankpolitik involved two things. One, selling out to Russia, going green in exchange for buying Russian gas. And number two, um, allowing vast numbers of immigrants from uh, Syria and other places, mostly young men. And it's been a big problem in Germany ever since. So this is this is a big issue. Uh, so shifting politics there. And that seems to be popular. Uh, Annalena Baerbach. Annalena Baerbach, who is the head of the Green Party in Germany, der Grüne. Uh, she's, she's part of the Green Party and she's out there kicking butt. Uh, I never thought German nationalism would rear its head again as the Green Party. Uh, but she's been pro-Israel, relatively speaking. She has been anti um, uh, against terrorism. She stood up against terrorism. She's anti-Russia. She's, she's strong on the on the European policy. So, you know, Europe could lead could use a few more green leaders like Annalena Baerbock if, if she's the the model 
You know, I'm, I'm loving that. Uh, and so that is a, a positive thing. And of course, Christian Linder, the head of the Free Democrats, who are also part of that coalition in Germany between the SPD, right, the Social Democrats, uh, Gurna, and the, the Free Democrats. The Free Democrats are the uh, free market pro-business party in Germany. Uh, kind of like they're actually the closest thing to the Republican Party here in the U.S. Because the Christian Democrats were the right wing center right wing party there are a little more socialist and statist, a lot more statist than the Republican Party is here. So in any case, German politics in Britain, uh, after anti-Israel protests turned to riots, support for a ceasefire in the UK went from 73 percent to 33 percent. Right. So Brits have overwhelmingly shifted their opinion away from a pro-Palestinian position. And this is wonderful. I mean, here, for a moment, the lies work. For a moment, the propaganda worked. For one instant, for a few weeks, Brits overwhelmingly supported a ceasefire. What does a ceasefire mean? Ceasefire means Hamas survives. It stays in control in Gaza. It continues to terrorize the people of Gaza, you know, throw gay men off of buildings and, uh, and such. Uh, and uh, in addition to that continue to terrorize Israel and attempt mass murder against Israelis, right? Okay. They had 73% for that. And then after their little riots, after their little temper tantrums, only a third of Brits now support that position. So this could have a massive impact on the upcoming elections. It kind of looked like Rishi Sunak and the conservatives were done. Maybe Keith, Keir Starmer had managed to bring labor back from the dead. And with the utter implosion of the Scottish Nationalist Party, Labour could finally maybe get Scotland back. And if they can get Scotland back, they have a shot. Uh, and when I say get it back, if they could gain seats in Scotland in any which way, they have a shot at getting majority. Historically speaking, Labour relied on their Scottish seats to give them uh, enough to, to push them into a majority nationally. Because uh, the, the Conservatives, the Tories, are much more popular in rural England. And that's where a lot of their support comes from. Uh, now the Tories have started to push into working class neighborhoods, right? And the Red Wall and what have you. Again, I don't want to go too in-depth. The point is, labor looked like they were on their way back. And now public opinion seems to be swaying against the Palestinians. May kind of come back to the conservatives. And of course, uh, David Cameron is back in government in the UK uh, as foreign minister. Clearly, uh, Rishi Sunak is seeking to get... Um, back on uh, good terms with Europe. <laughs> David Cameron is very favorable, seen very favorably in Europe, and I think he's ho hoping that will also improve his poll numbers because uh, that gets him away from uh, the way that the Conservative Party looked in the past. At the same time, as has been noted by some of the greats like Andrew Neil, the Conservative Party isn't being very conservative right now. So if they're not acting like a Conservative Party, how are they going to turn out the Conservative Party base in support of policies that aren't the basis, typical policies. Okay, anyway, did that. Ireland. Oh my God, Ireland, right? So an Algerian man in Ireland goes and stabs a couple of children and an adult near a school in Ireland, and the Irish have gone ape. Riots in the streets. They stole a double-decker bus, uh, burned police cars, and made their distaste for the policies of the Irish government, very well known. 
wow, <laughs> has led us, of course, to some, uh, you know, to joke, you know, from, uh, you know, from the river to the sea, uh, Irish Stan, you know, Irish Stein will be free, right? Uh, we've had lots of jokes, so we need a two-state solution in Ireland. Um, actually, you know, Ireland is, is a really good example of how two-state solutions really don't work. But anyway, the fact is the, um, the Irish have gone nuts. And so all over Europe, and now, you know, in France, we've had riots attacking uh, French people. We've had the murder of a Jewish woman and a swastika painted on the door. I mean, all these things happening in Europe. I think Europeans are waking up to the reality that they're, they have a problem, right? Uh, so just as politics are shifting in the U.S., so this is not shifting in a direction that is good for Hamas, for the terrorists, or for Iran. The problem is, and we have, where we have to be careful, is the divide and conquer. If, you know, Hamas, Iran would happily sacrifice Hamas if their allies, the Russians, win, right? The Russians are the allies of Iran, and by extension of Hamas, by the, you know... By that, and, and they've been very public in their support for a ceasefire and their pro-Hamas position. They've definitely moved Russia to a very anti-Israel position, and uh, the the Russians are very happy for the distraction, right? Their unprovoked war in Ukraine, where they've been massacring Ukrainians and raping and murdering Ukrainian girls for years now, um, that conflict has been stretching Western resources. Well, now with Israel in conflict, that draws attention and resources away from Ukraine, right? Behind the scenes of Iran and Russia is China pulling the strings, right? China is watching all of this very excitedly, right? And we had uh, Xi Jinping come to the U.S. to beat Gavin Newsom and, and Joe Biden. Um, you know, they cleaned up San Francisco, cleaned all the, the crap off the streets and made the place smell pretty so that they could have the... Uh, you know, the president of China come through and uh, he, he got up and he said, uh, you know, oh, we're, we want peace. We don't want to integrate. We have no intention of attacking anyone in the world. Right. And that is terrifying. Right before in March of 1940, right before invading the, you know, Denmark, Norway, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Belgium and France. Hitler gave this speech in which he said, you know, oh, we want peace with the world. Germany doesn't want to attack anyone. Uh, the British and the French, they're the ones who have caused this war, this fake conflict. And we don't really want to fight them and all this kind of thing, right? Xi Jinping singing the same tune in San Francisco. Dangerous times, my friend. There's an election coming up in Taiwan and the Chinese could use the results as a pretext to some kind of attack. They've been harassing the Taiwanese and moving their forces closer and closer and, you know, hoping to, to create some kind of incident that they can use as a pretext for war, perhaps, saber rattling and what have you. So this is very, very dangerous. Uh, Russia, China, Iran, they are the Axis powers in World War III, right? It's very obvious, very plain to see. It's a war by proxy because the U.S. is too powerful to fight. And as I've said before, nobody wins the nuclear game, right? Everybody loses in that kind of war. So there's, that's not really anything they can use because they'll get whacked. You know, they, they know they'll be destroyed. So 
our allies, you know, they, they make war on our allies. They make war on Ukraine. They make war on Israel, right? And uh, perhaps even on Taiwan in the hopes that by weakening those allies, they will weaken our power in the world. Um, you know, again, without going into too much detail, I can tell you that the, the, the single event that brought down the Soviet Union happened in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell. When the Berlin Wall fell, it demoralized the Soviet system. This is something I've heard you know, everyone talk about. There was this moment where the, the wall collapsed and everyone in the Soviet system was in shock. How could we let this happen? Right? The KGB, the, the Communist Party, everyone who held the Soviet system together lost heart. And so when the coup happened in 1991 and Gorbachev was arrested and this kind of thing and didn't quite work out and Gorbachev came back to power, everyone knew the Soviet Union was finished. The whole thing was breaking apart, tearing at the seams, right? It was that event. It had nothing to do with the Soviet Union itself. It was just an event that happened in Germany, right? If America cannot protect our allies, Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, then how will we look? We already look weak, right? They're attacking our allies and we're not willing to say that we want a Ukrainian victory and give them the, the materials that they need to win the war, right? We're holding back even now uh, uh, on Israeli aid uh, over political games, you know? The Democrats had to vote no. Every single Democrat is the deciding vote. They voted no on aid to Israel because the aid package included was separated from Ukraine, first of all, and second included defunding the IRS, not not paying for the 87,000 IRS agents that uh, they want to add. That's not defunding the IRS. It's not funding the expansion of the IRS. In any case, you know, we've got this political mess going on in the U.S. We need to sort this out. All right. We need to get the weapons to Ukraine and the money to our forces here, because most of the, the Ukraine aid, the $61 billion they're talking about, most of that is money for the U.S. to build up our defensive capability, our industrial plant to fight this war. We have to get there. We have to get production up. We have to get the materials produced, the, the munitions, the planes, the missiles. We need to get them over there where they can do the most good, the tanks, everything we can get over there. We need to get it over there now. We need Ukraine to have a massive victory and defeat Russia. The defeat of Russia, the defeat of Hamas, which is coming, that's, that's a victory, but Iran still has a lot of proxies. They have the Houthi rebels, they have Hezbollah in Syria and Lebanon. They have powerful interests that they, you know, in Iraq as well, they can, they can attack U.S. forces there, right? So we need to work on the Iran proxy situation and toughen up sanctions on the Iranian government. Giving Iran money and lightening sanctions is not going to help either. And that's, I think, one of the reasons Donald Trump is up in the polls, because we look at the leadership. Our leadership doesn't get it. They don't seem to understand what's going on. The stuff I'm telling you here, World War Three by proxy, Boris Johnson, the former prime minister of Britain, gets it. Right. But not everyone does. And this is a frustrating thing for me, you know, King Shlomo, many years ago in the book of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet as we call it, wrote that, you know, why, why seek to be too wise? You know, the wise man is miserable, right? And this is frustrating for me because I have people out there who are still spreading Russian propaganda about how corrupt Ukraine is. If a mass murder is going on and your first thought is, you know, oh, that country is so corrupt. They have a history of corruption. 
Uh, I'm sorry, murder is wrong. You, you do know that murder is wrong, right? You've, you've read your Bible, <laughs> I hope, right? You have Cain and Havel right at the beginning. You have, you know, you will not kill in hate. Written throughout is this theme of life being sacred, human life being sacred, right? His blood still cries out from the ground, right? You cannot commit murder. The Russians are murderers. Hamas, Iran, they are murderers. The Chinese are murderers. These people want to destroy American power. Get with the program. People, recognize who are the bad guys because they know who the bad guys are. The Russians say that they are, they are our enemies, enemies of the United States, want to see the U.S. weakened, want to see our power destroyed, want to see themselves in charge in Europe and, your, and Asia, just as China wants to be in charge in East Asia, right? Just as the Iranians want to be in charge in the Middle East. I mean, it, it is plain to see. A blind man could see it. Borrow a Jewish phrase. In any case... This is utterly, utterly ridiculous that people can't see this and can't get with the program. And so we need to get on the same page here. Let's get this war over with. Let's get the right aid to the right people. We need to make sure Taiwan is well armed and South Korea and Japan as well. The Japanese are arming themselves quite handily. Thank you very much. But we can help help Vietnam, help other countries, the Philippines, help arm our allies in the region so that they can help take on China themselves, you know, with our weapons. And we need to arm Ukraine and get them what they need to defeat Russia. And we need to help Israel defeat Hamas and Hezbollah. We have to win. Okay. We can't, we can't afford defeat. If our allies, if we're not able to protect our allies, the Russians, the Iranians, the Chinese, they will take over the world. A world run by those people is a world of October 7ths every day, everywhere around the world. And with that, my friends, that bleak picture right there, you know, I, I don't have a, a, a rosy, happy strawberries and unicorns for you, a picture for you. Uh, this is war. This is what war looks like, right? This is what my grandfather went through in the Second World War. This is our war, right? Now, if we wanted to stay a proxy war... And we want to defeat the bad guys. We need to deal with it now. Otherwise, it'll get so much worse. So uh, with that, I will, I will conclude. Uh, please like, subscribe. As always, um, you can visit InsideIsrael.News, the, the Inside Israel News website. Uh, there's a link there. You can click over to the Etsy store or you can just go to Etsy com or find the Etsy app on your phone. Uh, there's an Inside Israel News Etsy store. You can buy very cool merch there, including uh, bags, T-shirts, and what have you. Show your support for Israel and help people stay informed about what's going on in the world. And uh, I will say thus, as always, goodbye, Lahitrot.
Sofia. Od lovna tigvatenu, a tigva bačno talvaj. Bijot tam hovši, beacenu, erecion Jerusalaj. Shut up.